Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos. This is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're talking about John Maynard Keynes. In particular, we're talking about the general theory of employment, interest, and money. Keynes's opus came out in 1936 in the middle of the Depression. Now, we're treating Keynes as a political theorist here. We are not going to delve into highly specific economic debates about what is the size of the physical multiplier under specific conditions. We're not going to do that. We're going to talk about the basics of this theory, core concepts in it, and what its political consequences are and how it has fared historically. Some of the uh, people that influenced it, some of the people it has influenced, and where it kind of stands today. So, let's start with the basics. So, what's Keynes going for? Well, he says, The outstanding faults of the economic society in which we live are its failure to provide for full employment and its arbitrary and inequitable distribution of wealth and incomes. Now, Keynes argues that income tax is an important tool in correcting both of these things. He acknowledges people worry about using income tax because they think it makes it too worthwhile to evade tax. They think higher taxes diminish the motive to take risks. They think that economic growth depends on the motive toward individual saving, and therefore economic growth depends on the savings of the rich. But, Keynes says, when the economy is below full employment, it is not operating at capacity so when the economy is not at capacity, reducing saving and boosting consumption restores the economy to capacity, right? So if you think about, say, our Bernard Mandeville episode, where we talked about the fable of the bees, this is a while back, but Mandeville makes the argument that the pursuit of luxuries creates a bunch of different sectors to the economy that otherwise you wouldn't have. And that those things contribute to the overall growth and size of the economy and its overall prosperity. In a similar kind of way, if you boost consumption, that can create jobs that would otherwise not exist. And the creation of those jobs gets the economy closer to its full productive capacity. Now, what precisely is full employment? Well, full employment is this kind of full capacity where everybody who can be employed to do something is being employed to do something. But when we try to measure full employment, there are lots of different ways of measuring it. So, for instance, in the United States, the basic unemployment rate that you hear about on the news, that employment rate refers specifically to people who are actively looking for work. So the unemployed are those who are actively looking for work. Then there are uh, other unemployment rates that the government also keeps track of that are not reported on the news. These rates include other sections of people. So, for instance, they include people who have stopped looking for work. They include people who are underemployed, who are only employed part time or who are working less than they might like to be working. And then in addition to these other unemployment rates, you know, they're called U3, U4, U5, U6. 
there are uh, there, there are other figures like the employment population ratio or the labor force participation rate. These are attempts to get a sense of you know really what is the percentage of the population that is participating in the labor force. Now, obviously. Full employment is not 100% labor force participation, and it's not an employment population ratio of, of one. It can't be that because there are children and there are pensioners, and we can't reasonably expect children or pensioners to be employed. So if we're talking about full employment, we must acknowledge that it's not going to be everybody and there's also going to be some frictional unemployment. There are going to be people who are between jobs. So it's not going to be that absolutely everybody in even the age range of, say, 20 to 65 would be relevant. So this leaves a lot of room for debating what counts as full employment. And for instance, one of the things that uh, we've been seeing in recent decades is that governments have been able to achieve low basic unemployment rates, low U3, low standard unemployment rate reported in the media. But that has not come alongside reco full recoveries and sometimes not even partial recoveries or substantially partial recoveries in the employment population ratio or in the labor force participation rate. Now, some of that is accounted for by demographics. There's an aging population, especially in a lot of these Western liberal democracies. As the population gets older, the percentage that are retired rises, and that has an effect of diminishing the labor force participation rate. Some of it is accounted for uh, by broad changes in uh, how much people look for work. For instance, if you uh, have larger numbers of young people staying in graduate school until they're 30, you know, staying in their PhD until they're 30, like, you know, for instance, I did. Uh, you know, if you're in your PhD, then you're not you know, participating in the labor force. Of course, in a sense, if you take on, say, a, a graduate teaching job or you have that as part of your PhD funding, then you would be participating in the labor force. But Graduate students sometimes are in the labor force, sometimes they're not. Undergraduate students, sometimes they're in the labor force, sometimes they're not. If they are in the labor force, they're often underemployed relative to what they would be doing if, say, they weren't in school and were working full time. If, say, while you're in school, you work in a coffee shop part time for 20 hours a week, you're not employed to the degree that you would be employed if you were uh, out of school working a 40-hour-a-week job. So there's all sorts of stuff that you can potentially dive into, all sorts of nitty-gritty about what counts as full employment. My purpose here is not to try to adjudicate what full employment is or even to say what it is for us now and around here, but just to point out that it's really contentious and really hard to be sure. And a lot of Keynes's theory is predicated on achieving this thing, full employment, and we are not sure precisely what it is or whether we've achieved it. And there's always room for debating whether an additional couple percentage points of the labor force really ought to be in work. Always room for debating it in almost every situation. Okay, moving, moving forward. So Keynes says, measures for the redistribution of incomes in a way likely to raise the propensity to consume may improve growth. 
in these conditions where you fall short of full employment. And in the 30s, it was very clear that they were short of full employment. In the Great Depression, it was very, very evident that they were short of full employment. You could not really argue with that. Now, these measures for redistribution of incomes include, you know, for instance, inheritance tax. Keynes argues for quite substantial inheritance tax because he thinks that inheritance has allowed for an excess of saving relative to consumption. Uh, Keynes argues that even though there's going to be these higher rates of income tax, these inheritance taxes and so on, he argues that the motive of money making and the environment of private wealth ownership are still necessary and therefore some mild level of inequality should persist so that, quote, the average man or even a significant section of the community is in fact strongly addicted to the money-making passion. And this for Keynes is about preserving motivation. Keynes also points out that we do not need high interest rates to encourage saving because high interest rates reduce the scale of investment deterring people from investing. So if you think about this, if say you have a very high statutory interest rate, that means that whenever you borrow money, you have to pay a lot of money to the person that you are borrowing it from. And that is going to make it harder for you to borrow money. It's going to make you more reluctant to borrow large sums of money. So if say you were thinking about starting a business, but you'd have to borrow money to start it, you might be reluctant to do that if the interest rate is very high. And that's the sense in which the high interest rate reduces the scale of investment, deterring people from say starting businesses. So by lowering the interest rate, that makes it easier for people to start businesses. And Keynes says it's not necessary to have a high interest rate to get people to save money. Or at least it's not necessary to get them to save enough money. When interest rates are high, capitalists are able to exploit the scarcity value of capital. And for Keynes, this is a form of rent seeking. And rent seeking is something that economists uh, are very disparaging about. A rent seeker is not someone who does anything productive, but who charges others for the use of things that they own. And therefore, they are taking advantage of or exploiting the fact that they own the thing, that they have property. So someone, for instance, who's a venture capitalist who sits on a pile of money and charges you interest to use that money, but otherwise doesn't work or doesn't do any kind of productive work. That person is just seeking rent in much the same way that someone who owns a bunch of land and charges you a rent to make use of the land. That person is just seeking rent. But, you know, Keynes points out at least land is actually scarce. There is a genuine scarcity of land, but there is no reason that capital has to be scarce. There's no physical limitation on, uh, on capital on investment capital as such. So Keynes argues that the interest rate should be reduced until it encourages enough uh, job creation that you get full employment and that, quote, the rentier, the functionless investor should be, quote, euthanized. Now, bear in mind, this is from the 30s. It's, it's before World War II. It's before uh, Hitler. It doesn't have the kind of connotations that you might think it has now. So outside of these recommendations, Keynes calls his proposal conservative. 
The state affects propensity to consume primarily through tax policy and through the interest rate. Some state investment is required, but not state socialism with a capital S and another capital S. So for Keynes, the state does not have to own the means of production and decisions do not need to be centralized beyond what is necessary to achieve full employment. Once full employment is achieved, the classical theories can be followed again. And in this way, Keynes tries to portray himself as the savior of the classical theories. He is abandoning the classical theories for the purposes of saving them from political oblivion. Keynes wants to keep private initiative, responsibility, decentralization of decisions, the pursuit of self-interest, quote, the traditional advantages of individualism will still hold good. Indeed, without full employment, the odds are stacked against individual entrepreneurs because without full employment, they're limited. You know, it shrinks the set of people that they can sell stuff to. When you have large numbers of unemployed people, they can't consume as much. And that uh, means that there are fewer customers. So without full employment, the odds are stacked against individual entrepreneurs. And so by pursuing full employment, the obstacles to new enterprises will be reduced. We talked about that, for instance, in reference to the interest rate. It also increases the customer base to have stronger domestic local economies. So Keynes says, quote, the authoritarian state systems of today seem to solve the problem of unemployment at the expense of efficiency and of freedom. It is certain that the world will not much longer tolerate the unemployment, which, apart from brief intervals of excitement, is associated, and in my opinion, inevitably associated, with present-day capitalistic individualism. But it may be possible, by a right analysis of the problem, to cure the disease while preserving efficiency and freedom. That, in a nutshell, is the normative goal of this project. So, in the past... Keynes argues that governments have tried to relieve economic distress by competing abroad for markets. So this follows G.A. Hobson and his famous imperialist uh, imperialism study from you know, 1902. Right? Hobson made this argument that because of a lack of consumption in the domestic market, states were forced to compete abroad for markets, and that this led to the age of imperialism and to the possibility of imperial wars for control over foreign markets. So, uh, Lenin argues that that is an inevitable consequence of capitalism. In L Vladimir Lenin's theory of imperialism, he borrows from Hobson and says, this is what capitalism inevitably does. It has an imperial stage where the capitalist states begin competing with one another for the control of markets. And that because of this, you know, World War I is this big imperial war and it's the end of capitalism Everyone must realize that this war is just being fought for control of, of market share, uh, of foreign markets, and they should stop fighting each other, refuse to fight each other, and overthrow the capitalist states, and, and capitalism should come to an end. And of course, the Russian Revolution happens in response to frustration with, uh, Russian, uh, with, with the Russian performance in World War I. But that doesn't happen everywhere. And Keynes argues there's no need for it to happen everywhere because it's possible to solve the consumption problem through domestic policy without trying to control all of these foreign markets. 
There's no need to go and try to grab all of them because you can get the consumption at home. Now, Keynes acknowledges that rentier capitalists will oppose these proposals. Really rich people are not going to like all of this because it puts the cost of preserving the capitalist system on them. They're the ones who have to give up this position of being able to save piles and piles and piles of money and then extract rents in the form of interest for the use of that money. So in response to the idea that what the capitalists, the vested interests and so on, they're all going to oppose this and they're going to prevent it from working and that therefore the state has to challenge them more directly, perhaps through some kind of state socialism. Keynes says, quote, at the present moment, people are unusually expectant of a more fundamental diagnosis, more particularly ready to receive it, eager to try it out if it should even be plausible. But apart from this contemporary mood, the ideas of economists and philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. I am sure that the power of vested interests is vastly exaggerated compared with the gradual encroachment of ideas, not indeed immediately, but after a certain interval. For in the field of economic and political philosophy, there are not many who are influenced by new theories after they are 25 or 30 years of age, so that the ideas which civil servants and politicians and even agitators apply to current events are not likely to be the newest. But... Sooner or late, it is ideas, not vested interests, which are dangerous for good or evil. Now, this is an idealist claim from the point of view of the Marxists. This idea that uh, ideas will ultimately beat material conditions, the distribution of material wealth and power. And it is a little bit of a technocratic manifesto insofar as it suggests if you really want to have influence, go Write academic books. Be an academic scribbler, right? So this is very appealing to a lot of academics because it suggests that the academic can exercise this enormous social influence by winning an argument, by prevailing in a marketplace of ideas. And so it's predicated on the idea that we have a, a deliberation in which the best ideas can ultimately win. We have a kind of public deliberation. We have a kind of discursive space in which those ideas can win. And that that space is not overly dominated by the influence of the vested interests. Right. Now, of course, Marxists straightforwardly and totally disagree with that paragraph. And so a lot of the debate here is about whether these kinds of distributive changes can occur without a more direct confrontation, a material, physical confrontation with those vested interests. Now, where does all of this go? Well, in point of fact, it's, you know, as I said, enormously influential. And many states adopt to varying degrees this set of theories in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, it becomes 
the dominant paradigm. And it plays a very substantial role in legitimating liberal democratic states because the liberal democratic states are doing this. They are trying to achieve full employment. They are trying to diminish the power and influence of the rentiers. And they're doing this through tax policy, right? Uh, and through the management of the interest rate. The crisis for all of this comes in the 70s. When, of course, there is the crisis of the 70s, the stagflation, the huge uh, levels of inflation, and the huge levels of inflation agitate very, very wealthy people, and this causes them to politically mobilize, right? So, one of the, the thoughts here is that, well, you know, practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. In the 50s and 60s, insofar as what Keynes says about the economy is taken as orthodoxy, a lot of wealthy people believe or come to believe in large part because of Keynes's role and the theory's role in getting Western states out of the depression, or at least it's, it's, you know, perceived role in doing that. Uh, a lot of very wealthy people straightforwardly are Keynesians in the 50s and 60s and believe that Keynesian policy is necessary to achieve strong growth rates. And therefore, they ultimately benefit. Their investments will pay off. They will have more opportunities for profitable investment if Keynes's theories are followed. So even though that might involve, say, now and then accepting a higher rate of tax so that the state can stimulate aggregate demand, when the state does that, that causes the growth rate to go up, which creates new investment opportunities. So the cost of achieving full employment by paying higher rates of tax now and then by accepting higher rates of state spending, that's a cost that a rich person who believes in Keynesianism is willing to pay. In the 70s, there is a breakdown in the confidence of the rich in Keynesian ideas. And this, of course, leads to monetarism, leads to uh, the popularity of Hayek-influenced types of libertarianism. But if you'll notice, you know, insofar as Hayek places a great uh, level of emphasis on the value of decentralization, on the uh, value of, of having uh, decisions that come about through a kind of spontaneous order, Keynes, in his chapter 24, expressly says that he is perfectly content to keep a large degree of decentralization, provided that there's enough investment, uh, excuse me, enough uh, state spending, really not investment, enough state spending to get you to full employment. Nevertheless, in the 70s and in the 80s, the argument returns that what is really necessary is to push down and control wages to prevent a wage price spiral, and therefore to push down the ordinary person's ability to contribute to demand through consumption. And ultimately, those arguments prevail. And the you know, trends over the last 40 or 50 years are for, again, there to be an expansion in the wealth uh, of the very, very richest, and for there to be a return to uh, stronger forms of rentier capitalism than uh, existed in the 50s and 60s. So, ultimately, the theory has not succeeded in you know, euthanizing the rentier. 
But it did succeed in uh, preventing a lot of people who had come to believe that the economic system of the 20s and earlier was dysfunctional from adopting more radical views. And in this way, it bought time for the liberal capitalist democracies. That's what I'd say is it's kind of overarching you know, role here. Uh, there are a lot of specific points that the theory makes that uh, are, are interesting. I think that it is uh, a valuable thing for anybody really to take a look at because when we don't examine some of the questions that Keynes asks about, say, the relationship between consumption and saving, that could cause us to lapse into some relatively narrow and thoughtless economic approaches. But do bear in mind that it's not just a set of economic ideas. There's a politics here, and it's a particular kind of way out of the crisis of the 30s. And to a large degree, the Frankfurt School, you know, say Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse, those guys, they're to a large degree responding to the success of Keynesian policies in forestalling the material crisis that otherwise was believed by, say, Lenin to be about to deliver socialism. These policies, uh, Marxists of, of the mid-century period, acknowledge, prevent there from being the kind of severe material crisis that leads to, you know, straightforwardly, to revolution. And that for forces a lot of Marxists to reconsider, you know, is revolution possible? Uh, if so, how? So it has a big impact on Marxism as Marxists try to take on board uh, and, and incorporate in some way the role of this Keynesian theory. And to a, a substantial degree, Frankfurt School theorists argue that what it is, is it's the state intervening in the economy to avoid the crisis that the economy would otherwise generate. And in the course of doing that, making a, a set of further interventions into the culture, either deliberately or as unintended consequences of the interventions into the economy. And therefore, that the state's role becomes much, much larger and takes on a certain totalitarian character. Uh, and in this way, the liberal capitalist states get compared by Frankfurt School Marxists to fascist states in the sense that both states are saving or rescuing capital with interventions into the economy for the purposes ultimately of preserving capital from the revolution which would otherwise engulf it. All of that makes sense, Alex, or not so much? <laughs> not so much. Um, so, what are some of the concepts here that are a little bit difficult? It might be, I think, useful to just kind of, you know, what are some of the basic concepts that Like propensity to consume or marginal efficiency? Yeah. Or Let's start with that, propensity to consume. So, the propensity to consume is the likelihood of a person to consume a given dollar that you give them, right? So if you give somebody a dollar, what's the chance that they're going to put it in the bank versus what's the chance that they're going to go and spend it somewhere? Maybe it's food, maybe it's energy, maybe it's their rent or their mortgage, but they're going to spend it. The higher the propensity to consume, the more likely someone is to spend money. So Keynes's point is if you are poor, if you don't have a lot of money, then your propensity to consume is much higher. You are much more likely to consume 
a dollar that you receive than someone who has a lot of money. Someone who has a lot of money has a hard time coming up with ways to consume all of that money and so ends up saving a lot more of it. So Keynes argues that when you don't have full employment, you need a higher propensity to consume and therefore you should give money to people who don't have a lot of money because those are the people with the highest propensity to consume and therefore things like, say, unemployment benefit are very economically helpful in situations where you don't have full employment. Make sense? Uh, does it does it help saving or hurt saving them if it's high? Well, a high propensity to consume, of course, undercuts saving. But this whole theory is predicated on the idea that when you don't have full employment, there's an excess of saving relative to consumption. And so there's a need to rebalance the economy in favor of consumption, not as part of a kind of permanent, never ending, you know, under consumption theory. Keynes has some respect for the under consumption theories. They've influenced his work and he finds them valuable in the contemporary political debate insofar as they motivate people to support the right policy. But Keynes is not a pure under consumption theorist. He doesn't argue that capitalism in inevitably and invariably and always at all points and times suffers from under consumption. But in specific situations where you don't have full employment, under consumption becomes the problem. And therefore, if you continue to focus on promoting saving, you just make it worse. It's just odd because he kind of defines saving as consumption, as investment. Maybe that's because inputs equal outputs. I'm not sure, but it's hard to... Well, so, yeah, to, so some people will try to blur the distinction between saving and consumption and suggest that saving automatically generates its own consumption. The thing to bear in mind is, like, let's say you have a huge, huge, huge amount of saving and you don't have a whole lot of consumption. If you start businesses in this situation, you know, you can turn the, the saving into consumption by, say, setting up a business. And in the course of setting up a business, building, say, a building to run your business out of and hiring some people to run the business. You can do that. But if there isn't a lot of consumption, then there won't be a very large number of customers and the business will fail. And therefore, if you read the situation correctly, you won't make that in investment in the in the first instance you won't turn the saving into the into that form of investment because you'll recognize that you don't actually have enough demand for the business to ultimately succeed and so Keynes argues that in situations where you have a lot of saving and not a lot of consumption that this is what tends to happen people who think about starting businesses will recognize that they don't have much of a customer base and so they won't start those businesses or if they do start those businesses they will just fail and so this means that there won't be a lot of profitable opportunities to invest. And so the savers will look for these profitable opportunities to invest and they won't find them. And because they won't find them, they'll start speculating. They'll start kind of gambling or moving as a herd and chasing after stuff that they've heard might be profitable because there will be this dearth of actual places where they can profitably invest. And so what they'll start do is, uh, doing is bidding up and creating bubbles in the values of various assets, right? So for instance, let's say you, you uh, have a bunch of money you're saving. You can't find any, any real business to invest in that will actually you know, uh, be able to succeed. You don't want to lose your money by investing in businesses that will fail. So instead, you start throwing it into cryptocurrencies. 
And you and your pals all start bidding up the value of cryptocurrencies. And the more people invest in the cryptocurrency, the higher its value becomes as more and more people invest in it. And as people hear that the value of the cryptocurrency is rising, more and more of them pile into it. Right. And that causes it to go up more, which causes there to be more discussion about crypto and how everybody's making money on crypto. And, you know, Matt Damon makes his commercial and, and says fortune favors the brave buy the crypto. Right. And as more and more people talk it up, more and more people dump more and more money into it and it goes up and up and up. But ultimately, there's no business there. And insofar as there's no business there, there is no customer ultimately at the end to be satisfied, which is why Warren Buffett says that you know, cryptocurrency is kind of bunk. Because there's no customer, or at least no legal customer, there are some I illegal ways that cryptocurrencies can be uh, used, but there's no legal customer. Uh, because of that, ultimately, this can't make money in the long term. It can be a speculative device by which people who get out ahead are able to make some money. But ultimately, this is not something that can work as a, as a major sector of the economy in the way that, say, investing in the steel industry or in investing in agriculture or what have you. you know, that actually supplies something for a discrete customer base. This is a bit of a diversion, but I seem to remember John McAfee saying that it would be something like legal customers who'd want crypto because they'd be tired of the... Or they try to escape, maybe not illegally, uh, state control and surveillance. Yeah. So this idea that uh, you you want to avoid state control and surveillance again, uh, that might be useful for the purposes of trying to evade tax, which would be illegal, right? But ultimately, if you're going to you know, operate legally, then whatever income you make, you have to convert it into the currency that your state taxes you in so that you can pay the taxes that you owe. So if you make a bunch of money off crypto, when it comes time to declare the money that you've made, you have to pay tax in dollars. And because you have to pay tax in dollars, you then have to convert the crypto into dollars, which means that all of that crypto that you acquired with dollars just has to get converted back into dollars at some later stage if you're actually to make any money off it. So he's assuming now, it's a rival. The people, yeah. So the people who actually want to do that, they don't actually want to uh, use the crypto legally in most cases. They're looking to evade tax. So they're hoping to make a bunch of money in crypto, never declare the income that they've made and hide it from an IRS that's underfunded and is unlikely to be able to track them down. Okay. Uh, but go back to saving. Because um, he says that it's this universal idea that an individual act of saving is just as good for effective demand as an individual act of consumption. And maybe this is too much of a technical question, but he says it's hard to get people to stop believing this fallacy because they believe that owners of wealth want capital assets, not the yield of capital assets. I don't know what that means. but Yeah, so in a condition where there's full employment – you know, relatively straightforwardly, investment allows the economy to expand uh, on this theory. But if you're in a situation where you don't have full employment, then there are people who aren't going to be participating in the labor force. And that is going to be a drag on economic growth. And it means that you're going to end up having people who own a bunch of stuff that you could use in a business, but aren't able to actually put that stuff to uh, profitable use. So, for instance, if we have a society where uh, nobody can afford to buy 
any wheat. Okay, nobody can afford to buy wheat because nobody has a job. You know, millions and millions of people are in the street and nobody can afford to buy any bread, right? If nobody can afford to buy any bread, you can own a bunch of wheat fields and you can own a bunch of bakeries and you can have the whole thing vertically integrated. You can own every single part of the you know, bread producing process, but it doesn't do you any good because nobody has any money to buy bread with, right? And even if you lower the price of bread, if nobody has any money, then nobody's going to buy your bread. And what tends to happen in these uh, situations is that prices start to fall, right? Prices start to fall as you try to get somebody to buy the product. So this is deflation. This is the deflationary spiral. So if you're someone who is a customer and you notice that prices are falling because businesses are desperate to try to get somebody, somebody to come up with the money to buy their products, uh, and you notice this, then you start waiting. You wait because you know that the price will just keep getting lower over time as the business gets more and more desperate, right? So deflation tends to be self-reinforcing in these very severe depressions where the state doesn't intervene or doesn't do anything to prevent deflation from setting in. And so in this context, uh, it, it really doesn't do you any good to own the factors of production, because owning the factors of production when there is no viable customer base is just having a bunch of stuff that you have to pay to maintain that can't make you any money. And so then, of course, what happens is people go bust and they go bankrupt. And once you know that everybody who owns any you know, owns a wheat farm goes bankrupt, why would you buy a wheat farm? Why would you make any wheat? And so the economy stops producing wheat and stops producing bread. And now you have a shortage of it. And now if you were to try to restart the level of bread production you had before, you'll find that you, you know, lack the fundamental uh, stuff that uh, the farms and the facilities that previously produced that stuff, a lot of it has been disabled. A lot of it has uh, fallen into disrepair because why would you bother to pay to maintain any of it if you can't make any money from doing that? You have no incentive otherwise to maintain any of it. So, for instance, in the recent coronavirus crisis, one of the reasons we have a lot of inflation now is that during the crisis, a lot of stuff was shut down. <laughs> and then when you try to start it back up, it's not all in position to be started up. So, for instance, in the United States, we have uh, lost about 5% of our oil refining capacity relative to pre-coronavirus. So, if you've lost 5% of your refining capacity, it, you can't just turn refineries on right away. And indeed, because there's all this, you know, all the talk about green and climate change and so on, people who own these refineries are not sure that they can make money by turning them back on in the long run. They're not sure they want to invest in in turning them back on. So if the state doesn't invest in turning them back on and they don't invest in turning them back on, then when the economy tries to heat up again, it becomes more difficult to get oil where you need it. And that contributes to a rise in oil prices. Now, the 5% reduction in refining capacity is far from the only reason that we have high oil prices at this moment. There are lots and lots of other reasons, but it's one of the reasons and kind of illustrates this hysteresis, hysteresis or hysteresis that sets in where through lack of use, the productive capacities of the economy diminish. If you allow this crisis to go on and you don't intervene, more and more parts of the economy fall into disrepair and become harder to start back up. 
And if you, you know, you can imagine if you really had a very long crisis, you might even have an exodus of, of the people who understand how to run particular industries or sectors. So, you know, if in a particular country, you, you know, completely give up on, you know, making, say, you know, uh, computer chips, it may be very difficult to then start a computer chip industry all of a sudden. You may not have people who understand what they're doing in addition to not having facilities that are functional and ready to do the things that you need, in addition to not having good supply chains for the raw materials that you need. So during these periods where the economy contracts, you also lose potential because the things that you shut down, it becomes harder to turn them back on. And oftentimes the investments that would have been small that you could have used to just maintain these things as they were operating before, it becomes a lot larger when you're paying to start up something that's been neglected for a long time or to start up something that people don't remember how to run. It becomes much more expensive at that point. Do you think it was slightly intentional with COVID maybe to shut down certain industries? Keynes doesn't talk about that, but he at least in terms of fine-tuning the economy. But when he talks about the 19th century, he's quite clear that there was a settlement and um, basically wealth owners wanted to keep wages down and employment well below full employment because they're under the influence of their liquidity preference, he says, which means their desire to hold cash and not invest, I think. I don't know. Yeah, so during a crisis, sometimes people get nervous and so they want to hold liquid cash. They want to hold money they can get at quickly and easily so that they don't go bust. And that means that when there's a liquidity preference, when rich people have a liquidity preference, then they start kind of hoarding money in liquid forms like cash or stashing, say, metal uh, or, say, buying up uh, other things that they think of as kind of liquid substitutes like cryptocurrencies. And insofar as there is a legal use for crypto, one is kind of as a replacement version of gold, as a kind of Internet digital gold, something that you can hold when you have a liquidity preference uh, or when you're nervous about the state of the economy in general. So uh, in in that kind of situation, you know, uh, hoarding large amounts of gold or large amounts of money, that is economically completely useless. That takes that money out of the system and further contributes to underconsumption during crises. But you know, when there's a lack of confidence among the rich that they're going to be able to make it through a given year or a given six month period, you start holding more money. Like say, for instance, you, you know, in your own life, you have no idea whether you're going to have, you know, an emergency of some kind, a a big expensive emergency. So you start holding a certain amount of money in a cash form in, in in your bank account so that in case you have an emergency, you, you can access that money. Now that cash, you can't invest it. You can't use it to, Uh, you know, say buy stock, right? Because if you put it in the market, it wouldn't be liquid. It might be harder to get at. You can't put it in, say, your 401k or your Roth IRA or what what have you, right? At the same time, you can't spend that money on goods and services because you're holding it, hedging against some problem, right? So one of the ways that we reduce the amount of money that people have to hold in liquid form is by insuring them against various kinds of disasters. If you are Uh, If your bank account is insured against, say, a run on the bank by the FDIC, you know, by the federal government, then you don't have to worry about, at least up to a certain point, 
you uh, you know, running out of cash. And notice that the FDIC, it only insures bank accounts up to a certain point because uh, it, it doesn't want you uh, sitting on extremely large piles of money in bank accounts. That's not useful. But to let you know that, hey, you know, if you have a certain amount of money and something happens to the bank, you'll get the money back. That insures you against that particular disaster. That allows you to leave the money in the bank instead of putting it in a bunch of gold bars and hiding it in your attic, right? Uh, similarly, if you are insured against disasters, if your house is insured, if your car is insured, if you have health insurance, these things all make it so that you don't have to hold as much money liquid in your bank account. And if you have a state where you don't have those forms of insurance, then you end up having people who have to hold larger and larger amounts of money liquid in their bank account. One of the things you'll notice about you know, Americans if you have bad health insurance, but you're otherwise well-to-do, so you have money that you can hold in your bank account, a lot of Americans in their 50s have to hold some money in their bank account, you know, in their health savings account, so that they uh, are protected from having a big medical expenditure all of a sudden. All of that increases this liquidity preference and wastes money from the point of view of the economy because it forces people to sit on money. But wouldn't the state sit on it in the form of uh, state-sponsored healthcare? I don't know. It just it seems expected that a large proportion of people, as they get older, are going to get sick. Therefore, most will spend, not most, a good amount will spend that saving. You're expecting that. So, well, it's potential. Uh, you know, people who are in their 50s are not yet on, say, Medicare in the United States. So Medicare, of course, is a, a more comprehensive insurance system, which doesn't involve as much of that as, say, the lower level, uh, say, bronze Obamacare plans that a lot of people in their 50s or in their early 60s, if they've kind of early retired, especially, and they don't or they're self-employed and they don't have employer provided health care. If you're in your 50s, your late 50s or early 60s, you don't qualify for Medicare. That's when you'll see a lot of these kind of upper middle class Americans having to keep a bunch of cash on hand for unexpected medical expenditure. Mm. When we're talking about they could just buy higher quality health insurance plans, but oftentimes they will try to avoid having to do that. But then that forces them to have to worry about the possibility that all of a sudden they'll need money. And then when you're old enough, Medicaid will kick in, so it's fine. No, Medi Medi Medicare is Medi for Medicare. the elderly. Medicaid is for the poor in the United States. Okay. It's just, when you said liquidity preferences, I was reminded of mercantilism and how they, in the 1500s, 1600s, they didn't want people to hoard money, basically. At least the state. They, they thought it was doubtful in the state, but for private investors, they, not a single person, Keynes said, would support hoarding of money. And apparently that's because it hurts the rate of interest policy. And maybe we should distinguish between the rate of interest policy and the marginal efficiency of capital, because both are very helpful, he says. But yeah, too high liquidity hurts the rate of interests. And the mercantilists saw that. So you could make anything. Yeah. Yeah. The, when there's a scarcity of capital, then that tends to lead to a greater ability on the part of those who possess it to use higher interest rates to extract rents. When there's a scarcity of capital, people with high, yeah, they don't want to extract rents. Okay, people can extract rents if there's a scarcity of capital. If lots and lots of people are hiding gold in their homes, then uh, if you need money, if you need to borrow money, because all of the money is is in you know uh, a lot of, a lot of people who have money have these big hordes of it. Uh, those people can you know, potentially because you have a hard time getting money any other way. 
they can extract higher interest rates. Uh, the, the more scarce capital is, the higher the interest rates that can potentially be extracted. So keeping those rates down is important in a crisis like the crisis of the 30s to get to full employment. But the rich still want low interest rates anyway, in general, or not? Well, for Keynes, it's argued that low interest rates are in the long run good for the economy in this kind of situation because low interest rates will allow more people to start businesses. They'll be able to borrow and expect to be able to have their business make enough money that it's worth it to borrow at that interest rate. If you jack the interest rate up, it becomes uh, a deterrent to setting up a business. Think of it this way. If, uh, if you raise the interest rate on your mortgage to very, very high percentages. Well, at a certain point, you just wouldn't buy the house. You wouldn't buy the house because that interest rate would be too high. It would make the mortgage too bad a deal for you. So if in general, across the economy, interest rates are high, that has a, a, a deterring effect on starting businesses, on buying property, on any kind of thing that involves a loan. But if you lower those rates, then more people can borrow money and more easily, which allows more people to set up businesses, more people to buy homes, and so on. But you know, if the economy becomes dependent on, say, something like uh, you don't have high enough wages to pay for your retirement, so instead you're depending on your house to become more valuable over time, and then when you retire, you're going to downsize and sell your house and make a ton of money off your house and then live off of the money that you made, moving yourself into a small condominium or a townhouse or something and using the proceeds from your house sale as your retirement money because you didn't have high enough wage and the government hasn't provided for a pension then that creates a situation in which people are dependent on the value of, of homes going up. But generally speaking, uh, you, you want to avoid having the cost of these things be overly high for people, because if they're overly high, then people can't buy them. In Britain, because wages and uh, wage growth has been very anemic, it's become increasingly uh, the case that people depend on the value of their homes rising to provide for retirement. Um, and this has locked a lot of younger people out of the housing market, incidentally. It's quite historical because is that what usury laws against Jews were for, to stop this rate of interest going up extremely high? And to, yeah. Uh, you know, usury, usury laws, you know, of course, there's the economic effects of usury laws. Uh, and of course, Jews were targeted often uh, as usurers, and it was one of the bases for anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages uh, and, and beyond, insofar as that association of Jews with usury has continued. Uh, of course, part of the reason that got going is that Jews were one of the few uh, classes of people who were able to be bankers and to do uh, lending in those periods because usury, lending money with the intent of making money off the lending is expressly uh, you know, forbidden in the Christian Bible. And so, of course, as usury has become, uh, as, as uh, lending money has become an ordinary part of economic practice, that particular stipulation in the Bible has had to be relaxed in a lot of uh, interpretations of Christianity. But originally, uh, 
the Catholic Church was relatively muscular in trying to discourage usury. And therefore, insofar as you needed lending to occur, you had to find populations that were not subject to that, uh, to those religious rules. And therefore, Jews were often put in this position of um, having to, to do banking. And then once Jews were put in that position, you get the, the problem of being associated with uh, creditors and the negative views people have about creditors then attached to to Jewishness. Jewishness. Uh, yeah, so there's a kind of uh, you know, significant role that that plays in contemporary forms of anti-Semitism. And in the 30s, you know, this frustration with creditors, you know, that contributed to anti-Semitism and to uh, the rise of, of Nazism in, in Germany. So we want interest rates to be quite low so that investment is just creating wealth, basically, because the income comes from consumption as opposed to consumption coming from income. So, Well, so that you can get to full employment, so that the economy is operating at capacity. As soon as you get to full employment for Keynes, the classical theories become relevant again, and liberalism goes on more or less as before. And so that's why this is framed as a patch on the liberal economic system. He is criticizing the classical doctrine for the purposes of saving it, not for the purposes of destroying it. Because we can't have valuable things, basically, uh, without the profit motive. And also because human activities, not just, yeah, not just the valuable things, but the human nature, he says, the fact that people will seek some kind of power over in their environment. And if that's not channeled into a legitimate kind of money-making stream, it'll just be needless death, things like that. Yes, there's a, an interesting argument where he suggests that if people are not addicted to money-making, that they might attempt to pursue political power, uh, that they might start to do politics. And that, uh, to me, is gestures at something like Benjamin Constant's argument about how if people don't have, say, the private liberty to be enterprising, then they might instead pursue the public liberty of participating in rule, uh, and that that might lead to a return to you know, more ancient political forms. Uh, not to endorse that particular view, but it's, it's a, it is very striking how much that point from Keynes reminds me of that point from Constant. I don't know where the marginal efficiency of capital falls into all this. It's is it is it more important than interest rates, or can you not make a generalization like that? It's definitely separate. He's key to emphasize that, and apparently it wasn't seen as separate by classical theorists. Well, ultimately, you know that there's you know a, a different question about ensuring that you have enough uh, surplus that you can then stick that into further developing the factors of production, right? So, you know, for instance, in the Marxist theory, the thing that is distinctive about capitalism is this accumulation, that this surplus is accumulated, and then the surplus can be used to develop you know, better machines. It can be used to uh, educate workers, uh, to prepare them to do new types of jobs. It can be used to further augment the factors of production, to make the, the further develop the means of production, to make you know, robots, to make machines. And Keynes is 
interestingly, also the author of a piece arguing that in a couple of generations time, the number of hours that people will need to work will be greatly reduced because there will be this explosion of machines and automation and productivity will get so high that people will only need to work four hour days. Of course, that did not happen because if that were to happen, then you would not be getting the full maximum uh, efficiency out of capital. To get the full efficiency out of capital is to have this surplus and full employment at the same time, to have as many people as possible working and producing, while at the same time uh, saving this surplus. So to have everybody working, but to have those people consuming as little as possible consistent with everybody working, right? If, if you don't have everybody working, then the economy is not at capacity. So you have to get everybody working. But once you get everybody working, then you can focus on limiting consumption to favor further investment into augmenting the capacity of the economy to produce. But only once you have everyone working and those luxury sectors, the, the consumption-oriented sectors, those are necessary so that everybody works. And so when Keynes suggests that, oh, we could get down to four hours a week, that suggests that in the future, people will not prefer to augment, uh, to make capital as efficient as possible. People will instead prefer to limit the amount of time that they work, even though that means reducing the uh, rate at which capital accumulates and the rate at which the means of production are augmented, the factors are augmented. So, it's interesting because Keynes kind of frames that as a value choice or as a political choice. But in point of fact, the tendency has been to keep as many people as possible working as much as possible uh, and then limiting consumption beyond that point and encouraging investment. Someone like Elon Musk straightforwardly makes this argument that it's better for you to give him a dollar because he will come up with something better to do with that dollar than than you will. That his investment in developing future technology is better than you spending it on whatever it is that you would spend it on your you know, latte or whatever it is that you would you would buy. Right. Someone like Elon Musk makes that argument that but for Keynes, Elon Musk's argument works, but only once there's full employment prior to full employment. It is better to give that dollar to the person who will go and buy a latte. But once you're at full employment, then you can give that dollar to somebody like a Musk to invest in, in technology. Does that relate to Keynes saying that in the US, uh, the crisis of 30s, 20s was solved, I think, when Roosevelt reduced stocks slightly? So there's disinvestment, not just investment. Something that recovery needs disinvestment. I don't know. Even though we're talking about investment helping things, apparently disappear. Yeah, yeah at, at one point he proposes a, a rather strange reform to the stock market. This idea that if you buy a stock, you should be required to hold it for at least a year. Right? You have to hold the stock for at least a year so that you can only make money off the stock if it was actually a good investment. If it actually is something which contributes to improving the factors of production. Uh, if you can sell the stock sooner, then you can sell it as a form of speculation, as a form of gambling. And the, the system of investment becomes a casino and becomes a way for people who have too much money lying around and no sensible plan for what to do with it to play games. So he suggests that if you buy any kind of stock, you should have to hold it for a year as a, as a matter of law. 
Now, that has not been implemented. Mm -hmm. Indeed, we've gone in the opposite direction in favor of high-frequency trading, which is meant to kind of uh, make trades very quickly to shave marginal fractions of a penny advantages off of the market, squeezing every last fraction of a penny off of your investments. That has nothing to do with improving the factors of production or further developing the overall output of the economy. And for Keynes, it would be criminal to, to set up a, you know, a computer that high-frequency trades. Is there like a conflict between finance and industry, in a way, in Keynes? He's, say, he's saying that finance is getting out of control and speculation is basically about, well, not the general interest. A bit like I was fumbling in the Zizek episode to try and say that when people try and make money on the stock market, firstly, you can make a lot more than if you make a wage. And then second, um, the goal of it is not to create real wealth for people. It's just a kind of, yeah. Yeah, we see in a lot of contemporary Keynesian arguments, critiques of financialization of economies that become too focused around the financial industry and not around making anything real and therefore have this tendency toward asset bubbles. Right. So like, for instance, in the case of Britain and the housing market, where you have an overly financialized economy where there's anemic wage growth, anemic productivity growth. And so uh, as a consequence, you get this enormous inflation in the value of houses. And Britain's a good example because it's very extreme. A lot of the same problems are in evidence other places. But in Britain, there has been very, very flat productivity growth, very, very flat wage growth and huge housing spike. It's easy to take Keynes out of context and just apply this argument to today, but based on the 50s, would this argument, do you think, help the current cost of living crisis? Energy bills going up hugely, wages not. Or maybe money wages are going up, but real wages are not. That's his whole point. Yeah, so Keynes's interventions are relevant when you're not at full employment. Now, a lot of people would argue today that we are at full employment because U3, you know, the, the basic unemployment rate that's covered by the media is quite low. But there has been uh, much less of a recovery in the employment population ratio or the uh, labor force participation rate. Indeed, there's been a general decline. What has tended to happen in those things is that every time there's a crash, the employment population ratio decreases or the labor force participation rate decreases and that those things never make it back up to where they were before. And so that therefore over time, while there's a little bit of a partial recovery, a little bit, you are never getting back to say the labor force participation rate that prevailed in say 2018 or prevailed in 2007 or prevailed in 1999. The late 90s would be the kind of peak of labor force participation. And so this kind of general trend in the 21st century to lower labor force participation rates might suggest that in general, there is uh, you know, an inability to reach full employment. Or it might just be that the population is aging. So one of the debates that you have in economics is how much are those changes due to demography and how much are they matters of policy, consequences of policy? It's very difficult to sort that out. There's a lot of debate about it. I won't try to say who's right, who's wrong. You know, in, say, the Japanese case, where the population is both falling and aging, 
There, there's a much stronger argument that it's just demography, that demography is overdetermining. But in other countries where there's population increase or large amounts of immigration, uh, where the population isn't uh, as straightforwardly aging, countries like the United States, for instance, it might be easier to argue that the reduction in labor force participation does have something to do more fundamentally with the structure of things. Now, you can get weird situations where you might not have full employment, but you still have very large amounts of inflation. And these are situations generally where oil prices have really gotten very high for some reason or another, like the 70s or the recent period. Uh, when oil prices really, really take off for some reason or other, it almost assuredly will produce some level of inflation in almost any situation. There are some exceptions. Like, for instance, the period immediately after the 2008 uh, shock, there was a rise in oil prices around uh, 2012, 2013. Uh, that did not pr produce a terrifically high level of inflation. It was worried that it might, but it didn't. Uh, but in, say, the 70s or more recently, very large amounts of, of increases in oil prices all at once, very, very quickly, have, uh, you know, to the point where there's actually the possibility of shortages of oil and gas in particular countries. You have to get to the point where there really is the possibility of shortage. That has really spiked inflation. And when that happens, you can get into a situation where you're not at full employment, but you also have a very high amount of inflation. And when that is happening, you get very, very grumpy rich people. Rich people get very grumpy in that situation because, for one, the economy is not growing very well. The growth rate is is reduced. Uh, and the lack of full employment you know, is suggestive of, of not reaching the full productive potential of the economy. Yet at the same time, inflation is running down the value of their savings, making it more difficult for them to find profitable places to put their money where they can make enough uh, make enough off that money to be able to even keep up with the inflation. So they get into a kind of double bind where there are relatively few areas where they can profitably invest uh, due to unemployment. Uh, and at the same time, the value of their money is decreasing constantly due to inflation. And this puts them in a situation where they can't win no matter how well they play the game. And that makes them very upset. Right. And so at that point, you get demands for major economic changes to secure them against inflation at minimum. And then secondarily, to return to full employment. So I would say right now, uh, it, it, it would be difficult to say right now whether we're at full employment, because by certain rates, certain measures, we would plausibly be. And by other rates and measures, we wouldn't be. Uh, the inflation that we're having right now is driven by having shut down large parts of the economy to fight coronavirus and then trying to turn them back on very quickly all of a sudden by the war in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine, which uh, threatens the oil and gas supply to Europe, uh, and also by you know, closing down refineries in places like the United States. Now, right now, gas prices have come down a bit. Part of the reason for this is that China is not uh, demanding uh, or consuming as much oil as previously anticipated. And this is in part because China is continuing to pursue a zero COVID policy. So it's continuing to 
you know, shut down parts of it, parts of itself. And because it's shutting down things to prevent COVID, as long as China does that, that reduces the amount of oil that China needs to burn. And that frees up oil for other countries that might otherwise be in trouble due to these other factors. So the inflation is driven by all of the countries turning back on, opening back up all at once and trying to turn the supply chains back on all at once, all at the same time. But if some countries are continuing to do zero COVID, that reduces the strength of the inflationary drive. So countries in East Asia that that are sticking with zero COVID are alleviating inflation in other places and alleviating oil oil price spike in other places. I would not say that that by itself is going to be necessary, uh, excuse me, is going to be sufficient for the ordinary person who is finding that things are getting more expensive for them. And there is plenty of of case that uh, something ought to be done to help the ordinary person. Of course, the argument from the rich point of view is that if you give a bunch of cash to the ordinary person or you raise wages for the ordinary person to allow them to keep up with inflation, that that will diminish the ability of inflation to come down and might even make inflation self-reinforcing. And so from that point of view, you can't help the poor person within with it because if you do, then there will still be inflation that will continue to eat at my savings, says the rich person. And you ought to prioritize protecting my savings over that person's ability to pay rent. But let's say the rich do demand some kind of protection against inflation. It can't politically work without helping poorer people somehow. Well, one way that you can try to drive down inflation is to jack up interest rates, making it harder for people to borrow money, making it harder for them to buy things like houses and cars. And another way that you can try to fight inflation is by driving up the unemployment rate. If you drive up the unemployment rate, then people are able to buy less stuff. And then that pushes inflation down. One of the arguments we've been hearing is that, well, actually, you ought to just consume less. You, you uh, ordinary people, you ought to just consume less. You're a bunch of greedy people and you ought to consume less. We read this in, in various newspapers and magazines. You know, this argument that this is actually a great opportunity to make a green transition and to stop consuming so much and to get sustainable and so on. It's a kind of green argument for reducing inflation by diminishing the ability of poor and working people to buy stuff. Is it too much of a conspiracy then to say when... News outlets talk about the great resignation, people leaving their jobs on masses, and there's a lot of talk about how this could be a good thing. Is that related to that at all? Well, no, no. I, I would say the great resignation is really about a specific moment, a moment that has already passed, in which because there was a, a labor shortage, because the, as the companies were reopening, Uh, And as the supply chains were trying to restart, there was this need to hire a bunch of people who had been laid off, especially in certain industries, which had had kind of thought, oh, COVID might be a turning point. If you remember, at the start of COVID, there was all this talk about how, oh, neoliberalism has collapsed. You know, it's the end of neoliberalism. And it's the also it's a, a great moment for climate. And therefore, all these old legacy industries that are dirty and filthy and they pollute they can be shut down and, and we'll never start them back up. So there will be a, a permanent reduction in 
the amount of, of air travel people do, that will be more expensive forever. There will be a permanent reduction in the amount of oil or the amount of coal that's needed. And so the thought was you could shut this stuff down and never turn a lot of it back on. And so when it did become necessary to turn a lot of it back on all at once, because as it turned out, there was you know, plenty of, of demand, uh, in part because of some of the measures that were introduced during COVID to alleviate the severity of the shock. Uh, then at that point, there was a need to hire a bunch of people. And so in that moment where there was this pressing need to hire a bunch of people, workers had a lot of leverage and they could potentially quit, change jobs, uh, and they had a lot of ability to get employers to hire them without a whole lot of scrutiny. Now, that was not a structural change. That was a consequence of a particular context in which all of the sudden, all at once, a bunch of supply chains were being started back up. And a bunch of stuff that people thought they were going to shut down and leave shut down had to be started back up. So in that moment, there's a lot of leverage for the worker, but that leverage was not structurally inscribed. So the people in the labor movement who really wanted to make the most of this, it's not enough to have a great resignation. That great resignation has to result in that moment being exploited so that you can start up a bunch of unions and unionize a bunch of sectors of the economy that previously weren't unionized. And if you don't use it for that, if you just quit your job and you don't uh, start a union, then that moment in which the worker has extra power isn't structurally inscribed so that it's permanent and lasts. And of course, while there have been some efforts to start unions in some sectors, there has not been a huge increase in the percentage of workers who are in unions or in the uh, sectoral penetration of unions. And so that moment of, inf of influence for labor has not been structurally inscribed, isn't going to last. And I think already has dissipated to a substantial degree. Yet the classical theory of unemployment seems to say that when there's involuntary unemployment, which means people who want to have a job can't get one, this is due to the unions. But I don't know if involuntary unemployment applies to today, but if it does, the class, yeah. Yeah, so here the argument is being suggested that the unions, by pushing the wages up, are preventing more people from being employed because if wages were cheaper, if labor was cheaper, then more of it would be bought, right? Now, uh, that is... Yeah, you know, strictly, you know, sure. Uh, if you are uh, under under conditions where you have full employment, if wages just go up and up and up, then that is is something that would deter people from hiring more, would deter people from potentially starting new businesses. Uh, but in conditions where you don't have full employment, in that situation, on this theory. If you push down wages, that just further reduces consumption. Because the worker, because they make less money than the wealthy person, has higher propensity to consume. If you push down wages, that just further pushes down consumption. And so in these kinds of situations where it's a lack of consumption that is the problem, pushing down wages will just further depress the growth rate. Mm. Right. So you see how with this theory, it all comes down to whether you're at full employment. If you're not, and people who you know, also want generally to improve the situation for poor and working people uh, and who want to increase wages, they will frame every situation. You know, liberal commentators will frame every situation as one where you're not at full employment so that you can have policies which will alleviate the situations of the workers and the poor. 
right? And conversely, people who want to protect the wealth of rich people will frame every situation as you're already at full employment or close enough to full employment. Now, that was how the debate worked in the 50s and 60s, where this was the dominant view that most people had. And so the debate was about whether full employment had been achieved, whether you needed to do more to reach it, right? Now, we're in a situation where a lot of people affirm something that's like the, the classical view without any, any of the uh, appendages or uh, modifications that the Keynesians made. And then on the other side, you have Marxist theorists, which suggests that, you know, in the long run, there isn't enough political capacity to implement some kind of regulated capitalism, because in the long run, the rich will always have greater political capacity because they will always be able to translate their wealth, their economic power into political power. And therefore, you're always operating at a deficit. And therefore, the only way that you could really inscribe the economic policies that would be most sensible would be to overthrow politically the rich through uh, some kind of uh, more direct confrontation. And therefore, they argue for trade unions, for uh, uh, mandatory sectoral negotiation, for uh, you know, and potentially for revolutionary activity. Or for unleashing the productive forces of capital somehow, which you can't do without a revolution. Um, yeah. Now, notice that all of this is, is focused around augmenting production. All of this is focused around augmenting production. All of the positions in this debate are focused around that, in part because in the 30s, the consequences of not focusing on that were very stark. You know, if you're not trying to produce an economy that you know, reaches full employment, well, then what are you doing with all of these poor people on the street? How are you going to take care of them? How are you going to make sure that they are okay and don't have to resort to criminality, right? So in the context of the 30s, you get a kind of broad consensus that what's necessary is to increase productive power. And also this kind of competition among states, it also leads to this idea that you've got to increase productive power because your economic capacity translates into your military capacity and therefore your ability to secure the state against competitors. And in the 30s, you have rearmament, you have getting ready for World War II. Being able to militarily compete is very important as well. So having an economy that's productive is necessary to have a military that's competitive so that your regime survives the war that's coming, the big war that's coming. So, uh, yeah, and, and for that reason, for instance, Stalin and the Soviet Union is obsessed with increasing the productive capacity of the Soviet Union so that when there is a war, which Stalin believes there eventually will be, although he's kind of taken by surprise how fast it comes, uh, the Soviet Union is able to militarily compete. And Stalin countenances all sorts of, of horrendous stuff to raise the production capacities of the Soviet Union for the purposes of making it survive a future war. Uh, this, this focus on production, though, where everybody kind of takes it as a given that that increasing production is is the goal or ought to be the goal, that itself is critiqued by the Western Marxists, the theorists of the Frankfurt School, who argue that this is a kind of, of concession to instrumentality and to a, a sort of totalitarian frame in which an impersonal goal, this increase in productivity, takes over the whole society and subordinates all other values to itself. Would they also make a similar point about the the, do you know about the second postulate, he says? He agrees with the first. The second uh, of classical theory. Like the utility of the wage yeah. when a given volume of labor yeah. is employed is equal to the marginal disutility of that amount of employment. Uh, or, uh, 
I mean, we could get it. Yeah, we we could get into a lot of the the economic details. It's just that's the main thing he's disproving. But, so yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's it really comes back to this question about saving versus consumption, and whether you ought to always be promoting saving, or whether there are circumstances in which you ought to promote consumption, and what circumstances should you promote consumption, and how far should you go in promoting consumption, and where do you draw the line? That's really what this theory, in terms of its political effects, that's what it means because. I could tell you the political, uh, the, the politicians, the political actors of the 50s and 60s who were slaves to this theory, they didn't understand all of those little details. What they understood is that they had to get to full employment. And if they didn't get to full employment, there was going to be trouble, mm. trouble. And it was necessary for the system to get to full employment. And that full employment was the object, the object of policy. Yeah. Conditioned, of course, by the need to deal with inflation, because the way that ultimately, you know, this question of when do you have full employment, the way it is ultimately understood is in reference to the Phillips curve in the 50s and 60s. The idea being that, okay, you know, you've hit full employment once inflation goes up and until inflation goes up, you haven't hit full employment. Now, inflation isn't just caused by, say, hitting full employment. Other things can cause inflation like oil price spikes. And so the fact that you've got inflation does not automatically mean you've hit full employment. As the period of stagflation ultimately shows, you can have those things together. But in the 50s and 60s, the simple textbook way of solving this problem of when have I got full employment was when the inflation rate goes up and not before. Right. So and you can think of it this way. If the inflation rate is very low, odds are you've not reached full employment. Odds are. But then there are cases like Japan, where the demography more or less guarantees that the inflation rate is going to be very low. And you may hit full employment and still be unable to get the inflation rate to go up very much because you have uh, an economy where uh, ultimately the number of people who are going to be able to participate in the labor market is continuously shrinking so fast that you can't produce that level of, of heat. But we could go on and on and, and talk about all of that. We're, we're over the usual length. So I think this is a good spot to kind of draw the line between Keynes, Keynesianism for political theory and Keynes as economic, uh, as, as the technocratic aspects of this. Uh, I, think, I think probably, probably we've explained it enough for, for one day. So uh, that's Keynes. I, I'm... We'll talk about after we get off what we're going to do next. But uh, thank you all for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>